from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The historic climate bill is now signed into law, but will the new Inflation Reduction Act really reduce inflation? We're now one month away from a possible rail strike. The last time we had a stoppage was the early 1990s. Why, with even out of strike, rail delays could linger another year. A look at a quiet yield-robbing pest. Soybean cyst nematode, or SCN, is the number one yield-robbing pest in soybeans. And checking in on Georgia's youngest certified farmers still winning over hearts of many. And in John's world, how not to solve the chip shortage. Now for the news, President Biden this week signing the Inflation Reduction Act into law, a massive spending bill containing health care tax and ag provisions. The package includes around $38 billion for agriculture, with $19.5 billion for conservation. Biofuels scored $13.3 billion for Farm Bill Energy Title programs, such as $3 billion for renewable energy projects in rural areas. Plus, the extension of the $1 per gallon tax credit for blending biomass-based diesel, so both biodiesel and renewable diesel. In addition, it does establish a sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. The president, along with the administration officials, hitting the road to talk about the plan. That includes Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack and U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. This is going to help nearly 300,000 farms and ranches across the United States implement conservation strategies on approximately 125 million acres. Administration officials say the act will reduce the deficit and be paid for through new taxes, including the 15% minimum tax on large corporations and a 1% tax on stock buybacks. Not a single Republican voted in support of the plan, many saying that it will only fuel inflation. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that Democrats are catastrophically out of touch with what American families actually care about. Well, as U.S. rail companies and rail workers continue labor discussions in the U.S., the grain industry warns that the U.S. is just one month away from a possible rail strike. Just this week, the White House appointed a presidential emergency board released a recommendation for both the rail workers as well as rail companies. Those recommendations were done as part of the ongoing collective bargaining process. Now, both sides have 30 days to either accept or decline those recommendations. If the rail companies and rail workers don't agree with what the board outlined, then rail workers can go on strike starting September 16th. The last time we had a stoppage was in the early 1990s. And um, Congress, I believe it lasted one day, maybe two days uh, before Congress passed a bill prohibiting a lockout or strike. And essentially the two sides had to then go back to work on reaching agreement. So um, Congress has a lot of power here um, and we would like to think that they're going to exercise it. Fisher warns even if a labor strike is averted in mid-September, rail delays are so severe, he thinks it'll take another year to get shipping times back to normal. Severe drought conditions are drying up the Colorado River, and that means dramatic and mandatory water cuts are coming to parts of the West. The Colorado River and its tributaries flow through seven states, supplying water and hydropower to millions of people. It also helps irrigate more than five million acres of farmland. The federal government announcing the Colorado River will operate at a tier two shortage condition starting in January. 
The move comes as officials predict water levels at Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, will plummet even further than what they already are. Right now, Lake Mead is at just 27% of its full capacity. The Tier 2 shortage means Arizona and Nevada will have to cut their water use starting at the beginning of the year. Arizona facing the largest cuts, about 21% of its yearly allotment of water from the river. Nevada, 8%, and northern Mexico by 7%. Our reservoirs are declining rapidly. As we have emphasized since taking office, the circumstances we face will require swift actions and increased water conservation in every state from every sector. Experts say by January, Lake Powell will be at a level that is just 32 feet above its ability to generate electricity. And drought and high heat continue to impact the nation's corn crop, with condition ratings taking another dip this week, just ahead of that ground truthing next week with the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. The latest crop progress report from USDA putting 57% of the corn in good to excellent condition. That's down one percentage point from last week. Soybeans, that's 58% of the crop good to excellent, down one percentage point from the previous week as well. Spring wheat harvest also getting underway with 16% of the crop harvested, well off the average pace of 35%. The Kansas City Fed reports that conditions in the farming area that it covers remain solid in the second quarter, but it says there are signs of things slowing. It says following rapid gains in farm real estate values over the past few quarters, it saw valuations moderate in the second quarter as farm income remains stronger than a year ago. But it does say that an increase in farm loan rates, drought, higher input costs, and the pullback in commodity prices likely contributed to a slightly less optimistic outlook about the farm economy in the second quarter. It says despite the concerns, farm loan repayment problems have declined to the lowest level in more than four years, as you can see on this chart. That's it for the news. Well, some rains moved across the country this week, but could more rains be brewing? Coming up for next week, we'll check in with our meteorologist next. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik. Matt, next week we kick off a pro farmer crop tour starting in South Dakota as well as Ohio, and then all of us will meet up in Minnesota. You know, there is still time for you to join us if you would like. But when you look at the forecast next week, we want to know one thing. Are we going to get drenched on crop tour next week? That's right, Ty, and we've uh, got to look at the rain chances heading into this week and not looking at much as we head through this week. Just some showers exiting off for our eastern leg of the tour as we head through Monday, maybe into Tuesday, and then things will clear out through much of the middle part of the week, which is just going to be perfect for us. But take a look at this. It's pretty dry across parts of Nebraska and Iowa where crews will be this week and uh, soil near average there for uh, our eastern leg of the tour and then we'll all end up up there in uh, parts of Minnesota but still improving back in the west with this root zone and across central Texas still dealing with some moist soil there in parts of the Mississippi River Valley as well and if you look at the latest drought monitor it really shows some improvements across the southwest dealing with parts of California Nevada even into Arizona and Colorado even New Mexico seeing some improvements. Still extremely dry, though. Uh, Oklahoma down to Texas. Those are the areas where we're going to see some rain heading into this upcoming week, and they're going to be much-needed rain, hopefully 
not all at once, but you can really see where we've seen some of those improvements there in the Rockies and in uh, parts of Arizona as well. Southern California, not as dry as it has been over the last couple of weeks, and it's all thanks to this pattern. It's allowing those showers and storms out there in the west, but a little bit of a dip here in the jet stream heading into early next week. That's going to keep things unsettled, allow more rain across the central part of the country and keep a little bit cooler there as well. And areas where we're dealing with the rain, not going to be as hot and humid, but still going to be warm down there. Temperatures still sitting in the 80s and 90s. But look at this by next weekend could be looking at a different pattern starting to move its way on in upper northwest could be looking at more chances for rain as we head through next weekend. But here's a look at Monday the 22nd of August. We've got rain in the east, a couple of systems moving on through heavier rain across parts of Texas and Oklahoma and still in parts of the southwest as this stalled out front continues to move eastward. It's still going to be there on Wednesday, still dealing with the heavier rain across the Gulf Coast and up into the mid-Atlantic states and still dealing with unsettled weather in the southwest and parts of the upper northwest as well. Still staying warm across the middle of the country and hot across the uh, western half and sunshine still breaking out across parts of California, keeping things dry there, but more rain expected through the end of the week there uh, in the parts of the southwest and then more rain still across the Gulf Coast with a very warm and humid conditions there as things start to dry out for parts of the east. But here's a look at the temperatures this week below normal where we're expecting a lot of that rainfall parts of the southwest right through Texas and Oklahoma still dealing with high heat up in the northwest and along the Gulf Coast and the east coast as well. And the precipitation you see it right here. That's where we're going to be looking at a lot of it could be some flooding potential there as well. And it's going to be dry across the northwest and the northern plains and upper Midwest and temperatures next week going to follow the same trend warm in the West cool across the center of the country or cooler than average and then more rainfall expected across the southern half of the United States heading into next week time back to you. Well, a lot of focus is still on the weather, but what caused that intense pressure to the markets to start the week and what is the market watching next? We'll check in with our analysts right after the break. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, ahead of the big pro-farmer crop tour, but also post-August reports from, from USDA. Arlen, when you look at last Friday, what came out? I mean, it wasn't really a, a bearish report, but to start this week, commodity markets were brutal. Yeah, it really was. And, and I felt like, first of all, the reaction to the report, we know the first reaction is the algos, the computers, and they're only reacting to what they've been programmed. And that tells me that the funds programming those algos had expectations that we were going to see USDA slash the yields for corn and soybeans, and they were very disappointed USDA did not. And so they sold off those markets hard. The human element brought those markets back. And that was encouraging. I thought that was justified. Uh, those were as of August 1. And August 1, the crop ratings are pretty good for corn and soybeans. And when you look at soybeans from a former agronomist standpoint, I can't say yet where we're going to be with the national crop. Are there problem areas? Yes. Are there some really good areas? Yes. I really can't argue with a trend yield for August 1st because that possibility is still there. With corn, um, they came down, I thought, a reasonable amount. It was actually a fraction of a bushel more than what we anticipated, but I can't argue with it. I think we're going to continue to see that come down. Corn's further in the maturation process, I think, was sped up more by the heat that we had this summer. That tends to lead to smaller kernels, although we've cooled down since then. 
but we still have a lot of areas that are dry. And I think we're going to see those yields drop down to low 170s, maybe even more than that. But we'll learn a lot next week about ear health across the Midwest to give us a better indication of that. But I thought it was overall a pretty neutral report based on what we should have been expecting. Yeah. So then, Christy, then as we came into this week, what pressured these prices to see us fall so much to, to start this week? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is just seasonally, it's really hard for these markets to rally throughout the beginning of August, right? So seasonally, uh, August 1 through even parts of halfway through September for corn uh, is a struggle point. And I think you need that information to continuously get bears uh, off the backs of bulls in this situation. And so we we didn't really get that to a degree. You know, we saw the yield cut in corn, but you still ended up with a carryout level that's okay as long as nothing happens, right? As long as we don't see additional yield cuts, as long as we don't see demand start to really push forward. And then when you look at the bean market, I think you had a lot of people thinking you would see a, a possible yield cut and they actually increased yield. And I think that caught the market off guard to a degree saying, hey, what are we going to see here moving forward? We know that August has been extremely dry for a whole lot of areas. We know that a lot of the bean crop got in extremely late. That's why we have the resurvey from USDA. And we also know that uh, you have the Western Corn Belt that's great at producing beans really dry. So there's a lot of unknowns and un unknowns during this period of time tend to just give the market a little bit of a flat or negative bias. Yeah, and we did get a little bit of rain this week in some areas, Arlen. Uh, you know, heading into August, kind of the general consensus from a lot was, listen, that the, 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 the beans look worse than the corn. But now that we have caught some rains, has that storyline changed? Well, it has for the beans where we got the rains. It's getting a little bit late on the corn, although you can reduce a lot uh, the the stress on the corn and late grain fill a little bit where those rains did fall. A lot of areas missed out on those rains. But I also think there's a lot of other factors here at play from the macro markets. If you look at the summer as a whole, we traded the grain and oil seeds in an inflation trade right up until about June 17th. And that's when the funds switched toward focusing on recession. They started selling their positions in the grain and oil seeds as well in the energy markets. And that really pressured these markets. And then we had the bounce in August when the stock market kind of priced in. So, okay, we priced in a recession, but the grain trade wasn't convinced that we had fully priced in recession. We tried to bounce on the weather concerns. I never felt like the funds had really bought into the weather problems. Their conviction wasn't there. And I think that's really showed over the past week. Yeah, Christy, real quick, when we look at, at kind of the yield potential that USDA thinks up in that North Dakota, South Dakota area where you are i mean significantly better than last year considering the drought that took place but do things look good that that good this year yeah i think the big question is i mean usda resurveyed for a reason there was 15 million acres of soybeans yet to be planted we know that uh, soybeans can get planted a little bit later and still be great soybeans but to carry a yield like that your 0.1 bushel uh, away from a record yield for soybeans you know you really do need really great conditions and i'm not sure we've seen that over the last 15 days, you've really dried in. You look at North Dakota as a whole, they don't have really any chance for moisture moving forward for the next about 15 days outside of the eastern, like one fourth of the of the state. You look at North Dakota starting to dry out really bad. Nebraska, we know that they have a lot of irrigated land, but that's a different story for corn versus beans. Well, as we head into crop tour next week, what are you watching and what is the trade watching? What answers uh, do you want to see next week out of Crop Tour? We're going to talk about that later on US Farm Report. 
Well, could there be more to the recently passed CHIPS Act that actually meets the eye? Here's John Phipps. The recently passed CHIPS Act was notable not only because it was slightly bipartisan, but it's fundamentally socialistic public investment in the previously private industry ironically made Chinese and American industrial policy more alike, but not in the way we imagine. Investing hundreds of billions in semiconductor research and production by private companies is exactly what the Chinese began to do over 20 years ago. While CHIPS was widely hailed by legislators from states likely to benefit enormously, like Texas and Ohio, we should curb our expectation. Remember the state of the industry. Two semiconductor giants, Samsung in North South Korea and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, produce as much as 90% of all the chips in the world, broadly measured. This is a formidable market advantage, but that's not their real economic ace. The rough gauge of how advanced chips are is a measure of miniaturization, smaller being better. The cutting edge right now for TSMC is two nanometers, an insanely small dimension. Those chips will be in production by as early as 2023. Intel's schedule for similar chips is 27. Meanwhile, after 20 years of pouring money and people at this industry, China's semiconductor push has produced eye-popping corruption and waste and barely reached the seven nanometer level. Crudely put, they're making 4020s and TSMC is making quadracks. The U.S. does have a significant advantage with companies like Intel, but our market share has been dropping all century as our companies focused on high-end and high-profit, but low-volume semiconductors, leaving the car and chip games or game chips to others. Now, consider will take at least five, three to five years before this public investment starts production and, coincidentally, rewarding stockholders a lot more than taxpayers. During that time, Samsung and TSMC will not be waiting for us to catch up. Both companies have built their technological lead by strong business alliances with firms all over the world, from Australian miners to German lithography tool makers. China adopted what I think is a dubious policy to do everything possible in China. And the U.S. has, eventually, has essentially followed their example with the CHIPS Act. This decision isn't working out so well for China, and it could cause us similar problems. Advanced manufacturing seems to require advanced cooperation, something money may not be able to buy. Thanks, John. And you can watch more of John's at commentaries on our Farm Journal YouTube page. All right, we need to take a quick break. And then up next, we check in with Machinery Pete for Tractor Tales. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, a treat for you Oliver fans. We're gonna check out a 550 that's still got some life left. It's the uh, 74. It's got about 4,000 hours on it. Dad bought it new. I run it every week to mow the yard, yes. They're easy to get on and off of, and uh, one I mow the yard with, the one we have over the farm, they're newer ones, I got power steering. 
they just, there's not, everybody has them around here. And uh, like I say, we've, I've got more than anybody else has got. They're just handy little tractors. Farm, we blade and we mow, got a rotary mower on it. Use it quite often over there. Oh, I grew up on Oliver tractors. And uh, when they quit making them in about 74, Dad bought a new 1655 in, in 72, and then a 550 in 74. And that's all I knew, ever knew to run was them, them sizes. Still to come, a child prodigy who's the youngest certified farmer in Georgia. But first, an unspoken truth about a yield-robbing pest that may surprise you. Michelle Rook has that story next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, pests can cost U.S. farmers billions of dollars annually from yield loss. But as Michelle Rook shows us in this week's Unspoken Truth About Pests, there's one pest spreading in soybean fields as production pushes farther north and west. It may come as a surprise to many farmers, but soybean cyst nematode or SCN is the number one yield robbing pest in soybeans. There are no in-season rescue treatments, but farmers can check fields now for this parasite and put together an integrated management plan for next year. So I can see a few here. Greg Tilka with Iowa State heads up the SCN coalition. 250, so that's the little female full of 250 eggs. He says nematodes are microscopic worms that live in the soil. When they infect soybean roots, eventually the female swells into a little lemon-shaped object. But it's tiny. It's about the size of a period at the end of a printed sentence. But we can see them with our naked eye. He says fields with low levels of infestation may show very few symptoms, but become more pronounced as populations climb. So there's stunting and there's yellowing, but it won't be uniform. It'll be in patches because the nematode is very patchy or aggregated. And some indirect uh, symptoms are um, areas of a field that have poor weed control. Um, they might not look sick, but it's poor weed control because they are stunted and the plants don't close over as quickly. So Tilko says many farmers don't even realize they have SCN, which can make it a silent yield robber. We could have up to 30% yield loss without any loss of color of the plants, height of the plants, or weight of the leaves. When you get into severe situations where you can see even mild stunting or mild yellowing, it goes up from there. 30% loss on 70 bushel beans equates to 21 bushels. And with $14 soybeans, that's $294 per acre, which makes SCN the most costly pest in soybeans. Soybean cyst nematode for the last 20 years has been ranked the most damaging soybean pathogen in, in all of North America. So that's the U.S. and Canada. And estimates are consistently around $1.5 billion, that's billion with a B, annually. Farmers can check for SCN through fall soil sampling or in season with a root dig. What we do this time of year uh, is really encourage farmers and agronomists to get out in their field, carry a spade. You don't want to pull the plants, you want to dig the plants, shake the soil from the roots and look for those females. Once detected, farmers can use an integrated management plan, which includes varietal selection. 
Tilka says 95% of varieties with common resistance have lost effectiveness, but there is one with a unique type of resistance. It's called Peking resistance, Peking, like the city in China. So farmers will want to grow both. They're going to have to grow the common resistance. They should search out the uncommon Peking resistance. He says rotation is also part of the three-pronged plan. They should rotate to corn because corn is a non-host crop and any year that a farmer grows corn in a field, SCN egg numbers will drop. Some of the eggs are going to hatch out and the little worms are going to starve. And that drop can be as little as 5 or 10 percent to up to 50 percent. Finally, Tilka recommends use of a seed treatment at planting time. And there are eight or nine or ten different seed treatments, every one with a different active ingredient and therefore every one with a different mode of action. SCN populations are higher in hot, dry years and in soils with higher pH. The pest is spread mostly by windborne soil, erosion, and on equipment. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks so much, Michelle. And you can actually find out more unspoken truth about pests with that QR code on your screen. Well, when we come back, was pest pressure a big issue this year across the Midwest impacting yields? Pro Farmer Crop Tour kicks off Monday, and we'll ask our analysts what they are watching next week right after the break. The 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour is coming soon. Register now for the nightly in-person or virtual meetings at profarmer.com register. All right, before we get into the Pro Farmer Crop Tour discussion, Arlen, we saw USDA be very aggressive when it comes to that cut to the cotton crop. We knew abandonment was going to be high, but it really caught even some of in those areas off guard just because USDA was so aggressive. Is this USDA changing their practice and being more proactive than reactive when it comes to some of these changes? Well, I think it's been a little bit more erratic lately. We saw um, a year and a half ago when they were quick to really drop the size of the Russian wheat crop, and then they had to end up coming back up a little bit. And then this year, they've been really slow to show the size of the Russian wheat crop and trying to catch up with the rest of the industry. And then now we come back to the cotton, and they're very quick to do it. But the bottom line is, I think what it shows is, just how bad the drought has been in the plains this year. And so um, th that it's just been, if we can't grow cotton, which does very well with a deep rooted crop in this condition, how in the world the other crop's gonna do it as well. But here's the bottom line, with abandonment that much and most of that abandonment being in Oklahoma and Texas, where they've been in such a long drought and the cattle feeders can't find feed, the rains that are in the forecast now over the next week to 10 days, if those rains verify, we're going to see a lot of wheat go in the ground down there very quickly. And it's going to show up on the winter wheat seedings report in January. It doesn't mean it's going to be harvested, but it'll provide some pasture and some feed for cattle. Is there a chance for wheat prices to climb again as we head into the fall and people are making these decisions about planting winter wheat or not? Or do you think there are just too many obstacles right now? You know, I was surprised that you've seen the market pretty much give up all premium of Russia and Ukraine into this wheat market. We know that uh, there's still some serious issues that the ability to get grain out of Ukraine is only for an extended period. You don't have it forever. They're only willing to do it for so long. And so I was surprised that you had taken out all that premium. But as you come in now to a good crop uh, for spring wheat, we had uh, the crop tour go through for spring wheat quality tour, and they had almost record yields. And 
from what I'm hearing, the wheat looks fantastic. The wheat that started into Minnesota being harvested in parts of South Dakota has ran really, really well. And so I think that's holding it back. All right, Arlen, as we head into the, this crop tour next week, and we see you start in South Dakota as well as Ohio and then end up in Minnesota, what are you watching? What do you want answered next week? We've had a lot of anecdotal reports come in about how good corn and soybeans are or how bad corn and soybeans are. We have that every year. This crop tour is our first opportunity to see how widespread the good is versus how widespread the bad is. And to really get a feel for not only ear health on the corn, how long are the ears, how, how what's the girth of the ears, how well did they feel, how much how widespread is the tip back problems that we've been hearing about and the same thing with soybean pods how have we been setting pods in those plants and as was mentioned earlier about the short plants are we packing a lot of pods on those plants or the short plants resulting in fewer pods west of the mississippi as well and then how are we starting to fill those pods those are the things that i'm going to be listening for as well as some of the disease we've had some high humidity levels in some parts of the midwest with warm overnight temperatures as that started bringing in some tar spot on the corn, uh, creating other disease problems in the crops as well, or is the crop still fairly healthy? Yeah, and Christy, you were on crop tour last year. I know you were on that Eastern leg. So you've had that unique perspective that you were there last year. Now that you're watching, what answers do you want to come out of crop tour next week? I think what I'm going to look at the most is going to be moving forward. USC has been aggressive on their corn yield, um, adjusting it down. And what I want to see is what does Pro Farmer have to say about that? Where do you see these yields kind of matching up and do we see more to come? You know, is this it? Did USDA get the, the horse in front of the buggy and say, hey, this is it? Uh, we kind of found our yield or do we see more? We know that we've had some uh, DTN, FBN estimates come out that have been really low. They've been saying that they are trending higher. They are satellite imagery. So that's a little bit of a different situation. But I think this is going to be really useful to see how aggressive USA needs to be moving forward after this. Also, I'm going to be watching pod counts on beans. The beans are very short around uh, Alexandria, Minnesota. We went down to north central Iowa. Very, uh, very short beans across that. I've heard it from majority of my producers. All right. Well, Arlen, Christy, thank you so much for joining us and giving some of your insights. We will be on Crop Tour next week. So tune in next week on U.S. Farm Report because our entire marketing discussion will be about what were Crop Tour's findings as well as talking to Pro Farmer about what their thoughts are moving ahead. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll, we will have much more right here this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Backnology Days is back. August 25th through the 27th. Come see for yourself why this annual event draws thousands of farmers to Atlanta, Indiana. Learn more and register today at bexhybrids.com slash field shows. Outdoors on the Farm is brought to you by Mahindra Rocksore. The side-by-side -side unlike any other. Stay strong. An Iowa farmer is taking wildlife management to a new level. Chip Flory takes us outdoors on the farm to see how his focus, combined with the years of work, are now paying off. Welcome back. Outdoors on the farm, we're at Tim Wreckers in Northeast Iowa. And Tim, the last time that we were here, 2019, looked a little different than what it does right now. What a project that you put in place. In fact, we were wallowing around in the mud, if I remember right, yeah. in tall grass. And now what we got is uh, a 20-acre crep wetland that's taking care of 750 acres of row crop area. Yeah. All that water has been coming down to this area forever. Yeah. It's just that now we're able to control a little more. 
we're able to handle the water. Instead of it, when we have an eight inch rain taking the road out, right. now we fill up a bathtub with it. Yeah. And which is great. All my tile outlets come into this, into this wetland area. It's designed to remove nitrates and yep. sediment before it leaves this farm. So as the water comes in here dirty, it's gonna leave cleaner. Okay, remind us of the initial goals. Mm -hmm. Because we gotta evaluate and see if it's doing yeah. what it's supposed to do. Original thought process. Right. How can I take a structure and remove nitrates and remove sediment before it leaves here? So that was my ultimate goal. Yep. The other practices I do already with cover crops and no-till, I thought this could be a nice add-on. It's a permanent conservation structure. It means that after I'm dead and gone, it works every day of the year. This cost was about $240,000, and the average person seems like a lot of money. But when you take that over the 750 acres that's protecting, right, and then divide that by 100-year life, years. you got about $3.20 per acre. By building this, that's the cost to protect this 750 acres above us. So talk about the buffer all that, that runs all the way around. I saw some wildflowers. There's a couple things that I want. Yeah. One thing is I have a bulletproof tile system here and I do not want to affect that one bit. The next thing is I want a great buffer that's pretty to look at. I said we gotta gotta get good pollinators, but we gotta have grass and we gotta have good cover for wildlife. Yeah. You know, that's important too. A lot of black-eyed Susans yep. and a lot of you know things out there, but every year it should just get better as long as it's maintained. That's one of the things that makes something like this you know, pretty to look at. And you want it pretty to look at, and we really want to make this an area where we can bring people in yeah. and actually show them this is the benefits, this is what um, farmers are doing to help protect water quality. Sounds to me like you're satisfied with the uh, project. This thing was probably done in the fastest time frame from start, from when I started talking about it we finished was like less than 18 months. It's a outdoors on the farm success story out here in Northeast Iowa with Tim Racker. Thanks so much, Chip. Well, are fewer farm kids off to college this fall? Customer support is next. Farm kids and college. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13% on a 20,000 bushel bin. That's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by August 29th and receive 7% off. Well, it may be a bittersweet week for some of you as you may be moving your kids to college, but overall are fewer farm kids actually attending college now. Here's Sean Phipps. Got a timely note from Sam Riegsecker in Delta, Ohio. Hope that's close. I am noticing that more and more local farm kids are returning to the farm here in Northwest Ohio. I think the push to get a college education and get out for farm kids like myself allowed me to get a taste of the world, but ultimately I found that that wasn't where I needed to be. I know you have talked about succession in the past on USFR, but I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on the next generation coming back to the farm to continue the tradition, even after being away for years. Sam, your comments are truly uh, coincidental because we just sent our oldest grandchild off to college. It also provided a helpful insight into the pattern of early careers in your part of the farm belt. There are very few uh, really good sources of hard data on this aspect of farming, but my impression is increasingly children are not leaving the farm for college at all. Or if they do, it's more likely to be a local community college. Uh, 
After all, if your parents own a multi-million dollar company, the interview process for employment could be fairly brief. Undoubtedly, this trend is also intertwined with the overall decline in all young men going to college. As I mentioned a few months ago, we could reach the Beach Boys prediction of two girls for every boy within five years or so. This fall's national student body will be around 62% women. For young men from farms, bypassing college is, I believe, all about farm prosperity. Farming can be learned on YouTube or just watching dad. Any specialized skills like accounting or agronomy can easily be hired when profits are high. Baby boomers like me were harangued constantly while growing up that we needed to go to college to get a job that paid better than farming, which at that time was just about any other job. My scant information suggests college degrees among farmers topped out around 1990 after the return of us boomers to the farm. Many of my peers hold degrees and often had other careers before farm economics made it possible for us to return. The current decline in farmer college attendance concerns me not only because it takes away a backup employment qualification, farms can fail after all, but college is the single best cultural connection experience young farmers can have with non-farmers. My time away from the farm may have hampered the growth of our operation, but I consider it the best thing I could have done with those early years. Thanks, John. Well, from time to time, you hear of child prodigies heading to college at a remarkably young age. Up next, we're checking in with one child prodigy in Ag. Well, at just six years old, Kendall Ray Johnson made history as the youngest certified farmer in Georgia. And as Georgia Farm Monitor's Ray D'Alessio shows us, at seven years old, She's still winning over the hearts across the country. These are the picklers. The picklers are a cucumber that, that we use for pickles. These are super sweet 100s. Yes, Kendall Ray certainly knows her way around the garden, doesn't she? Exactly how and when she developed that knowledge and love for gardening, her parents tell me they first noticed it when she was just three years old when her grandmother would tell us to bring her collard greens out and just put them back in the ground or put them in a pie or something so we could have collard greens again in a couple months off of the same stalk. And she was interested on how they, she would go out and look at how they would produce new little stalks and stuff like that. And she'd be excited about it, like ecstatic. You know, she'll see a yellow leaf. She's gonna question about why is it yellow? Well, what type of bug is eating it? Can we find, she calls it the culprit. You know, where is the culprit? <laughs> She'll study. Most kids your age, they're doing other stuff. They don't want anything to do with vegetables, but yet you're out here every day. Why do you enjoy it so much? I enjoy it so much because it means sharing food with the whole community. Sharing and community. Two of the major emphasis and foundation for which agroculture, Kendall Ray's business entity, was built upon. As mentioned, she's a certified farmer and a member of various farm organizations, including Georgia Farm Bureau. Her story capturing the hearts and attention of many, some of which felt the need to step up and lend a hand. Last December, Kendall Ray, mom Ursula and dad Quentin 
were invited to the Big Apple for an appearance on Good Morning America. Once there, Kendall Ray was presented with an early Christmas gift, a check for $10,000 to help with future farming endeavors. You've become, you know, a national celebrity. You're the youngest farmer in Georgia. You're traveling all over the country, talking to people. Uh, what do you think of all that? Well, I think it's pretty good that I talk to people. Mm -hmm. And I... And I pretty love it because I get to meet new friends every day. Thanks to Georgia Farm Monitor, what an inspiration she is. Well, before we go, a big thank you to the Missouri State Fair and Missouri's First Lady, Teresa Parson, for inviting me to be the celebrity judge this a week at the State Fair for the pie contest. It was so nice to see so many people, and we made it a family affair this year. Well, next week, I'm on the road for Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Tune in as we'll we will have all the results. We'll look at the market impacts and much more as we're on the road from Minnesota to end the week. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us right here next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.